Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 108. A new governor was in town, the Cape Sheriff, and he was another Peninsula campaign veteran called Sir Benjamin Durbin. In July 1832, Frontier Military Commander Colonel Henry Somerset went on leave. His father, the former governor, Lord Charles, had died in 1831, and Henry had to head back to the old country to sort out the extent of his state. Andri Stockenström, his nemesis, was also going to leave the frontier in 1833, first to London, where he tried to lobby the government to give him more authority, and when the colonial authorities refused, Stockenström sailed back to his ancestral land, Sweden. You should feel a pang of pity for Stockenström. His father had been assegai to death by the Amatkosa, and his only son, an infant, had died of illness in South Africa. The mental anguish had driven him away from his frontier, his adopted territory. Another character of the moment arrived in Grahamstown in July 1832, Colonel Richard England. He was supposed to keep things running smoothly while Henry Somerset returned home. Colonel England was not going to run things smoothly, for he immediately stepped up the patrols following up on cattle rustled by the Amakosa, increasing tension. As you know, these raids were supposed to be organized and focused. All they really did was commit the same crime in return, often rustling Amatkosa cattle from villages that had nothing to do with the theft. Their chiefs were first in line when patrols returned and had the most to lose from thieving. Other chiefs further away knew this and used them as cover. The instability inland and along the coast was something to behold in the years between 1832 and 1835. South African history is cluttered with the sound of bones being crunched by hyenas, eyeballs being feasted upon by vultures, and a cacophony of chaos. Forgive the histrionics, but I'm sure you'll agree once you've heard what happened over the next five years. For those who would blame one side or another exclusively, there's bad news. Everyone was involved in some kind of nefarious activity. It was just a matter of degree of nefariousness, or your support for one side or the many others. I'll start inland in 1832, this episode, then work outwards. At about the time that our friend Dr. Andrew Smith, the Scots surgeon who visited Dingon, was reporting back to Governor Sir Lowry Cole in Cape Town, Dingon had sent his impi across the Drakensberg to teach Ndebele leader Mzilikatsi a lesson. By now, Mzilikatsi had crushed Baron Barnes and his grand coalition of Berchenaars and Hartenaars at the Griqua and Twana at their camp called Kenna, which, by the way, is where Sun City is today in the Pilansburg. That was in 1828, leaving hundreds of the bodies strewn about the felt, a site that was still littered with the bones and rusty broken muskets and other debris half a decade later. In 1832, Mzilikazi sent his MP north all the way across the Limpopo and into Shona territory in modern-day Zimbabwe. The Zulu heard about this, and Dingan thought it an ideal moment to teach the former Kamalo chief a lesson. The Zulu regent ordered Ndlela Kaasumpisi, along with a large Zulu army, to raid Mzilikansi's territory centered on the Mahalisbeck Mountains west of Pretoria at a place called Denaneni, or Vonobuempurt, as we call it today. During fierce fighting close to the Arpis River, Ndlela took on Mzilikansi himself in a right royal battle. The Zulu defeated this weakened group of Ndebele and overran Mzilikatsi's great place called Ithlanthlanlela, as well as a number of other homesteads, before retreating with their booty of cattle. 
That was just in time, because the Ndebele warriors in southern Zimbabwe heard about what was going on and rushed back across the Limpopo in order to defend their homes. Mzalagazi got the picture and had to move even further away from the dreaded Zulu, so he translocated further west, establishing two new great places, one at Mosecha, near where Zirast is today, and another further north called Igabeni. This was not empty land. The Hiruchi chiefs lived here with their people, a green land with its excellent grazing. Some of the Hiruchi decided to konza Mzalagazi, while the others fled south to the Batlaping and even as far as the Griqua. The lower Val was further destabilized by all of this. Mzilikotsi was still seething about Baran Baran's attack four years earlier, so continued expanding his southern and western buffer zones, confronted the Bangwaketsi, where Botswana is today. Living along the Upper Orange was the Greek leader Jan Blum, who had his mind set on a revenge of his own. Mzilikotsi had defeated him, as I explained in a previous podcast, but Blum appeared not to get the message, and in May 1834 he loaded up his wagons, setting out on an expedition of mounted Karana and Griqua with armed Tswana warriors to attack the Indibeli's southern cattle posts, overrunning them quite easily. This raiding party headed back south after seizing as many cattle as possible, no doubt enjoying a braai or two of the ill-gotten gains as they headed home to the Orange River. Of course, no one messes with Mzilikazi. Once again, the Indibeli leaders' impis caught up with their southern attackers, defeating Blum for a second time, and they recovered their cattle. The Indibeli warriors wanted to continue onwards to the Orange River, but Mzilikasi stopped them, fearful of stoking the Cape authorities. Instead, he emptied out the felt, increasing the vacant buffer zone I told you about, and banned his Indunas from hunting further south without his permission. He was bending over backwards to avoid having to fight the colonials, Boer elephant hunter Jan Folun visited him at his great place near the Mariko River around this time, and Mzilikasi said he was trying to keep his southern marches clear. That was so the Griqua could be spotted by his spies long before they arrived. Mzilikasi Bana was being visited quite regularly. He had numerous Boer visitors and missionaries. Then Dibeli King welcomed the missionaries. He had heard how they were useful in keeping the colonials away. Unfortunately, the British were growing more interested in Mzilikatsi's land, and soon Dr. Andrew Smith would visit, yes, the very same expedition leader who'd headed off to visit Dingaan only the previous year. Governor Sir Lowry Cole's time was coming to an end. He was going to depart in 1833 to be replaced by Durban, who then found budget for a new scientific expedition into Mzilikatsi's land. Like with the Dingaan visit, this was really more of an intelligence-gathering exercise and to cultivate a good understanding among the native tribes, as they put it, about the British Empire. A bit of science, a bit of PR. As Smith set off on his good understanding mission towards the Lower Vaal River in late 1834, the Eastern Cape behind him was going to explode in violence. So what set this latest war in motion? One fellow who certainly poured fuel on the flames was Colonel Richard England, acting as military commander on the frontier, while Henry Somerset sorted out his matters in England. Henry, while forcing the Amatkoza, including his former friend Makoma, off ceded territory, had tended to treat the chiefs of the bloodline as royalty. He was respectful, as bizarre as that sounds. Henry was a royalist. The Amatkoza had royal lineage. So when he spoke to Makoma, it was not all master and servant. 
Unlike Colonel England, while Henry Somerset was away dealing with Papa Charles' will and trust, Colonel England arrived in Fort Beaufort to drive Matkoma and his people away from the Mankazana River below the scenic Amatola Mountains. England was more a colonial's man, a fundamentalist, if you like. A two-year drought had placed more pressure on the settlers and the Amatkoza. Colonel England didn't care, and another Empire deployee called Colonel Thomas Wade then appeared, who made matters even worse. Wade was appointed the military secretary at the Cape and was determined to sort out the frontier, having virtually no experience of that frontier whatsoever. He had formed his opinions from the correspondence with other officials over five years from Cape Town and had come to astounding conclusions from a distance. He had virtually no knowledge of the Khoikhoi, the Boers, or the Amakosa, being contemptuous of all their ways. It was in these months that the relationship between the Cape officials and Amakosa worsened and quickly around the New Year period of 1834. Wade acted as governor as Sir Lowry Cole departed and before new governor Benjamin Durbin sailed into South Africa. Wade pulled out his trusty quill and whipped together something known as the Vagrancy Act. This represented a complete revision of the Ordinance 50 legislation that gave Khoikhoi the right to own land and the right to a fair trial. This would not do, said Wade, and immediately allowed minor local officials to decide the fate of these Khoikhoi. That was a big mistake. From now on, any Khoikhoi found digging for wild fruits and roots and searching for honey would be called a vagrant. They would be arrested and put to work immediately. The Vagrancy Act was thus established to allow arbitrary control of the Khoikhoi and slaves who'd won their freedom, a sudden reversal of the law, which was confusing. It was a far cry from the early days of the VOC where slaves, many from West Africa and Madagascar and Java and India, won their freedom and then joined the ranks of shop owners and respected gentlemen. No, the new group of English settlers would not have these men as equals. They were black first, people second. This caused panic in the Kat River settlement and at mission stations. The Khoikhoi began to consider returning to a life in the mountains, or perhaps even join up with Amatkoza in fighting colonials who seemed to change their minds at the drop of a black hat. When Sir Benjamin Durbin eventually arrived and heard about Wade's actions, he suspended the Vagrancy Act, saying he would await word from Westminster, which eventually disallowed it. The act was quite obviously a tatty bit of legislation designed to reinforce abuse of the Khoikhoi. Local officials, like middle managers, are often the worst people to run into, even to this day. A pattern had emerged, an unfortunate pattern, that stamped itself on the minds of the settlers, that outsiders were meddling in their internal affairs, an uninformed external force that had no place judging what should be done about the Khoza and the Khoikhoi. Simultaneously, the pattern was hardening about what comprised an advanced culture and was evolving into a fixation with race, us and them. It was all so simple for these folks, because when they looked around at their newly formed organized towns, they were quasi-European, but outside lay danger, dragons, alienation, wild animals, and wild humans who were black or boo. A fear of the other had become an obsession. It was only one generation earlier where farmers had married Khoi and even Amakosa maidens. Now these gentrified colonials became horrified by the thought. 
Beware the born-again purist, they say. By mid-1834, and following Durban's intervention, the Khoi at the Cut River settlement calmed down. Wade's lunatic vagrancy law was expunged, but the episode had poisoned their view of the callow colonials. The frontier Boers were monitoring things as usual, and were even more unsatisfied by the Cape colonial authorities. The drought years had unsettled them, the loss of control over the Khoi had angered them, and inexorably the Boers began to move northwards towards the Orange River. The Boers, furthermore, were aware that the British were about to ban slavery. The dribbling departure of the Boer expeditions, small groups of families, was the forerunner of something far more significant, which we know as the Great Trek. The trekking had begun, not yet great, but constant, a trickle, then a steady flow. The Cape government first tried to stop the Boers from heading over the Orange, rather feebly, it must be said, and then they gave up. What did they care about a handful of Calvinists who the British officials didn't understand anyway, whose language they ignored, and ended up floating about on the open felt far away? Good riddance appeared to be the British attitude. That attitude, however, was going to change quite quickly when it emerged just how effective the trick Boers were in taking over territory. They would become a threat to British expansionism within a decade. Then they would begin defeating the British in battle, just to add injury to insult. So by early 1834, the Boers were sending their sons into the interior, pasturing their herds in Transorangia. They were identifying the best springs, the best pasturage, the best land. These initial visitors also found parts of the felt that had been denuded by the Mfitkani, by the Ndebele and the Nguani, and came to the erroneous conclusion that it had always been empty. It was denuded, but there's a big difference between denuded and unclaimed, as you're going to see. Some of these travels north were truly biblical. I had the great opportunity some years ago to travel to a place called Eldoret in western Kenya, where one of the trek parties arrived at the turn of the 20th century. One of the strangest places I've ever seen, the church walls covered in paintings of ox wagons. Other trekkers made it all the way into Angola, the famous Dorsland Thirstland trekkers. I'll return to some of these tales in the future, extraordinary as they are. More than 1,500 Boers were already across the Orange by 1834, and word was out that the British were going to emancipate the slaves, and indeed, emancipation was imminent. However, in what you could call another typically South African irony, the Boers' route north was blocked by mixed-race Griqua, Karana, Bastards, who had already trekked north, having been evicted from their land in the Cape by the ancestors of the very same Boer trekkers. These Griqua folks were operating with the same military gear as the Boers, firearms and horses, gunpowder, hats, trousers. They were Christians. So the Boers then turned further east, heading towards the Ndebele and the Zulu. Back in Cape Town, new Governor Durban was making himself at home. He was somewhat unusual in that he was not what you'd call an upper-class twit, to misquote Monty Python. He'd got to his lofty position by dint of his own merit. He didn't have powerful English family connections who landed him plum jobs in the military, and he was more liberal than Tory to boot. The Liberal government of the day had briefed him before he left, specifically Lord Stanley, who was Secretary of State of the Colonies, who instructed him to refuse any colonial legislation that separated white law from Khoi law. Of course, 
The settlers made a beeline for him as he arrived, seeking to convince him to do just that. But his opposition to the Vagrancy Act made him their enemy, another bureaucrat outsider who knew nothing of the challenges of Africa, they muttered in the Grahamstown Journal. Durban was also to oversee the retrenchment of the army of the frontier, something that did not go unnoticed by the Amatkoza. There were only 1,800 soldiers in the Cape, 1,000 on the frontier, a tiny force considering the power of the Amatkoza that was coming their way. As the Urbans sorted things out in Cape Town, he delayed a visit to that frontier, and this delay was going to cost him. In the end, it would take him more than eight months to head off to the troubled region, and by then, a war was underway. Meanwhile, late in 1834, Henry Somerset joined the odious Colonel Wade on a trip to Fort Wilshire for a meeting with Kosa Chief Makoma. The settlers were now demanding that the Amakosa Chief return 480 cattle rustled from their farms, but Makoma denied knowledge. Somerset and Wade were off to tell Makoma to accede to the demands or face a commando. When Makoma refused, Somerset and Wade were going to oversee the next evacuation of the Kosa from the Amatolas. And because this is real South African history, Somerset made Matkoma join him on the ride into the Amatolas to watch his people being forced out. Strange but true. Matkoma had met Henry's two faces before. At first he argued, then he rode with the officials into the Amatolas. Visualize if you can this travelling party. Somerset and Wade on their horses, heading to the ceded territory beneath the lovely Amatola Mountains, alongside the man they were throwing off his land. When this little party arrived there, a shocking scene awaited because the British troops had moved in already and were burning down everything they could find in the countryside. Even Wade, the man who'd called for tough action against the Amatosa, was taken aback, saying the valleys were swarming with blacks, as was the whole country. In our front, the people were all in motion, carrying off their effects and driving away their cattle, and to my utter amazement, the whole country around and before us was ablaze. It's one thing to prognosticate about kicking people out of their homes while quaffing tea in Grahamstown. It's quite another actually watching the elderly, the women, the children, carrying their few belongings like refugees while British troops galloped about, setting fire to their homes. In the midst of this madness, Makoma, who was riding alongside Wade, turned to him and said, When am I to have my country again? What country? asked Wade. This country, where we are, and that country, said Makoma, pointing in the direction of the Katrava settlement. Wade responded by saying that Makoma's time on the land was over. Makoma fixed him with an odd gaze and said, But we are to have this land again. It was his complete certainty that burned into Wade's memory. Makoma and his people's patience was going to run out shortly, but first the Rarabi chief spoke to the missionaries who published his comments in the next copy of the South African Commercial Advertiser. We do no injury to the colony, and yet I remain under the foot of the English, he said. And that, of course, was exactly the same language being used by the Boers, heading off on their great trek. Yeah, all these echoes of sentiment that bind people together, people who appear so different. The valuable land in the Mankazana Valley, this Amakosa land, was particularly coveted by the English farmers living around Grahamstown. As the Amakosa left their burning villages in the Amatolas, the settlers adopted the view that they had acquiesced. 
They had accepted their place. They were compliant. A dangerous misconception had developed. And yes, this eviction seemed so orderly. The huts were burning, the people were fleeing. And yes, Turban had stressed that it should be orderly. No gunshots, but lots of burning. So he had ordered his military to avoid firing on the Kosa unless directly attacked. The actions in these weeks had lit a political fuse. Durban had still not visited the frontier. Had he hurried there to talk to the Kosa chiefs, perhaps he'd have been able to understand their point of view. The missionaries certainly thought so, and were pleading with him to conduct the usual governor's tour. The wife of missionary Dr. John Philip was in Cape Town, paying daily calls to Durban's wife, pumping her for information. When was the governor coming to the Amakosa, was the question. Eventually, Dr. Philip decided that he should hurry from the frontier to Cape Town himself, and as he travelled on the 4th of November, 1834, he came across one of Makoma's men who'd received 50 lashes on the bare back and had been imprisoned for two months. The man had tried to stop a British soldier from burning his kraal. Damakosa had always been appalled at the British flogging their own troops, and this was the first time that any Kosa had been punished in a similar way by the British. Up to now, the chiefs had punished their own followers. It was insulting to be punished by an outsider. The man was humiliated. Dr. Philip reached Fort Wilshire and saw the fires burning that night as the kraals continued to be torched, and he was appalled, shocked really. The gravity, however, of the moment completely escaped the attention of the colonists and the officials. But it was the Amakosa's action away from the colonial's eyes that was equally significant. Kaleka chief Hinsa had moved his great place deep into the interior beyond the Kai River in mid-1834. That symbolic move was followed by an even more symbolic meeting of the Amakosa chiefs in August 1834, held at the site of Nika's former homestead, his great place. A ritualized gathering, but excluding the Kunukwebe chiefs, Patu, Kamo and Kungwa, who were regarded as allies of the British. Now why would the Amakosa hold a big political powwow without these chiefs? Well, the reason was the Amakosa had a big secret. They had reached the conclusion, finally, that their piecemeal actions against the British had weakened them in the face of colonial expansion. The British divide and rule policy had worked. The time, they said, had come for resistance. On the colonial side, there was not the slightest realization about what was to come. No foreboding, no sympathy. It was all a satisfied calm that had settled on these 1820 farmers and townsfolk. Gramstown's main topic of conversation in November 1834 was the departure of the Boers into Transorangia, an excited talk about the opportunities of more land seized from the Amatosa in the Amatolas. Writing in the Grahamstown Journal, Robert Godlinton espoused the voice of these colonists. They had survived the terrible early days of the 1820s. Now there was a degree of opulence which was far beyond their lives in Europe. The settlement had grown rich in corn and flocks and herds, and cheerful activities reigned. Drought even had recently been overcome. Let the good times roll. Godlinton then railed against the Kosa. They were savages sunk into the lowest abyss of moral degradation, he thundered in one editorial. Surely God was going to grant the settlers all manner of great things, starting with land. Somerset and Wade bid farewell to Macomba and rode away from the ceded territory around the Amatolas, where his people 
and Tiali and Botamani and Ngueno's people had all lived. Most cattle rustling died down. It had worked, thought the officials. Finally we have peace. But it was more like the quiet before the storm. Of all people, it was Colonel Wade who suddenly realized something much more ominous was imminent involving the Amakosa. He began receiving reports that the chiefs were calling up their warriors in great numbers. And as Wade finally headed back to Cape Town, he made the cynical decision to keep this information from Governor Durban. This was a deliberate act of malice, say most historians. The omission was designed to expose the urban when violence started because the governor had torn up Wade's vagrancy act. Wade claimed later he didn't think that the urban would have listened to him anyway because everyone knew how he hated the Amatosa. And it was at this moment, on December 1st, 1834, that South Africa's 40,000 slaves were emancipated, although full freedom would not be theirs until an interim period of what was called apprenticeship was completed. So the 1st of December was observed quietly by the missionaries. Services of thanksgiving were conducted. But most colonists were not thankful, especially the old families of the Cape. Their ancestors had shipped slaves into the Cape since 1652 and had the most to lose following emancipation. The urban, sitting in his government house in Cape Town, was satisfied. He'd accomplished his first task. However, It was a scant 24 hours after emancipation had been declared that there began on the frontier a sequence of events that would lead to war. We'll get back to that next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. (music) 